Well, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Happy July 3rd, which yeah. is July 4th Eve, <laughs> and which is Independence Day Eve, right? Yeah. I thought, where's my computer? There we go. This is two today. There we go. Uh, I thought that uh, as we prepare to celebrate our nation's birthday with uh, barbecues and family gatherings, I thought it would be a good opportunity to offer uh, special thanks to God for the blessings he's given us through our nation and to pray for our nation and its leaders. So uh, would you please pray with me? Gracious Father, loving Son, Holy Spirit, we pause to thank you for our nation and the blessings you have poured upon it. Blessings that enable us to come together today and lift our voices to you without fear of punishment by our government. Blessings that enable us to live in one of the most prosperous countries in the world. Blessings that enable us to live in peace with others in our neighboring countries. But Lord, we know that with these great blessings, we have much to answer for. We know that here on earth, the blessings you give are meant to further your kingdom. And so, Lord, we pray now for our country, that we would be a righteous country that values you above all else. We pray now for our neighbors, both in this city and throughout the nation, that your Holy Spirit would soften their hearts for the hearing of the gospel, that we as a people would turn from our evil, and that revival would rage through the land that we as a people would confess our sins and turn back to you. We lift up our leaders to you, Lord. We pray for the godly leaders that we have, that they would be strengthened and empowered to stand for your ways. And for those leaders who are blinded by the God of this world, Lord, we pray that you would remove the veil from their eyes, that they would see their need for a Savior and would turn to you and be saved. And through that salvation, Lord, they would begin to lead in a manner that honors you. Lord, on this day, on which we celebrate our citizenship in this great nation, we realize that it is a temporary thing. May our celebration of this nation never overshadow the ultimate citizenship that you made available to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. As wonderful as this nation is, Lord, may we hold our citizenship in your kingdom as the biggest definer of who we are. May your laws and yours alone be written on our hearts and flow from our mouths as we seek to glorify you on this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We live in a great nation, amen? Amen. We should be thankful. And it may be difficult to do, but I, I need you to do something for me. We're, we're in 21st century United States right now, but what I need you to do is I need you to blast back all the way to 12th century B.C. Israel. Okay? So we're going to do a little time travel there. And uh, the amazing thing about this is that even though we're examining events in 12th century B.C., these events are, are still applicable in 21st century America. This shouldn't be surprising to those of you who heard that opening poem from Ecclesiastes last week. Remember that chunk towards the end there that, that spoke about nothing new under the sun? If you don't, let me refresh your memory. I'm going to read now from Ecclesiastes 1, and we're just going to read verses 9 and 10. The whole poem is, a, is a, about how time marches on, right? But this little chunk right here, it says in verse 9, that which has been is that which will be. And that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, see this? It is new. Already it, is, it has existed for ages, which were before us. So the things that affected 12th century BC people still affect us here in the 21st century. And one example is from the sermon title today. It's the statement, that's not fair. 
right? Anyone with children has experienced this declaration, right? Maybe even this morning, right? Maybe it goes something like this. Mom, Jimmy ate the last of the Cocoa Puffs. Mom says, just eat the Cheerios. We're late for church. Hurry up. And what does, it, what does little Jimmy say? That's not fair. But if we're honest with ourselves, even we as adults notice when things aren't fair. As we look around our world, it's easy to, to see instances that we don't think are fair. This person has such and such, and I don't. He or she got the promotion, and I didn't. Or maybe we see things in our relationships with each other that aren't fair. A parent or a spouse gets a treatment that they don't deserve, whether that's good or bad. We live in an imperfect world, stained with sin. And with that recognition, how do we generally respond to someone when they bring their complaints? We say, life's not fair. Get used to it, right? But today, our task is going to be discovering how we as Christians should respond to unfair situations. And we're going to look at events in, in 1 Samuel chapter 1. We're back in the 1 Samuel this week. If you want to start turning there, you can, because we're going to be reading out of there here in a second. We're going to look at uh, how Christians should respond to unfair situations. To begin with, we're going to look at, in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, we're going to look at a, at a couple of situations that were anything but fair. Right? And then I want to move to Samuel, 1 Samuel uh, 1, 9 through 18, and I want you to look at two different responses to those situations. A response that dishonors God and a response that honors God. And once we've determined how to respond in, to unfairness in a godly manner, I think it's proper to look at how honoring God in our responses affects us as individuals. And then finally, we're going to close with some guidance on how to move forward in life after having dealt with an unfair situation. So if you would, we're turning to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 1. We're starting in verse 9. If you're able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? 1 Samuel chapter 1. Verse 9. Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli was the priest sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and the razor shall never come on his head. Now it came about as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli was watching her mouth. As for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart. Only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. So Eli thought she was drunk. Then Eli said to her, How long will you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah replied, No, my Lord. I am a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant as a worthless woman, for I have spoken until now out of my great concern and provocation. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace. May the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked him. She said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the women, woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Let's pray. Lord, we pray as David prayed in Psalm 25. Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Stephen. 
So it's been a couple of weeks since we talked about our, our cast of characters, right? Elkanah, Panina, whose name I practiced uh, quite a bit uh, before this Sunday. Uh, Panina and, and Hannah, of course. Right? And, and so let's refresh our memory here. We're in the time of the judges. So when we first uh, tackled 1 Samuel, we went through and we said, look, Genesis, everything was created. They went along. They got, uh, the Israelites got stuck down in Egypt. They got uh, rescued out of Egypt. They wandered the wilderness for 40 years. They finally entered the promised land. They took the promised land. And they're motioning. Is that better? Can you hear me now? There we go. Is that better for you guys? Yes. Okay, good. Good. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, they finally entered the promised land. They've taken the promised land, right? And um, they're just kind of sitting there now. And, the, and the, the phrase or the verse that describes uh, judges, the, the time of the judges the best, uh, was it, at that time there was no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Right? So this is the time of the judges. The time of the judges, they're, they're in the promised land, and there was a cycle that went through the judges. And it started with uh, the Israelites, they would start sinning, they would start worshiping other gods, uh, they would get deeper into the occult, and then God would allow the enemies to come in and start beating them up. And they would cry out to God, oh God, save us. And he would raise up a judge, the judge would deliver them, the judge would die, and they would go right back to sinning again and worshiping other gods. And then the enemies would come in, and then they'd cry out to God, and then God would raise a judge, and he'd save them, and then the judge would die. And they'd go right back to the beginning again. So we see this cycle all the way throughout Judges. And we get to 1 Samuel, and now we're going we're gonna to focus in on this, this little family here. We've moved beyond the nation, right? And we're looking, focusing in on this little family. For your sakes, I didn't make you stand while I read 18 verses, right? But I want to reread verses 1 through 8 for you, just to, to kind of familiarize uh, you, you with it so you can understand our study today. So uh, 1 Samuel chapter 1, uh, starting in verse 1. Now there was a certain man from Ramathim Zophim, from the hill country of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zoth, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, the name of the other was Penina, and Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man would go up from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests to the Lord there. When the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters. But to Hannah he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. It happened year after year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her. So she wept and would not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? Why, and why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Now I mentioned that the first point of today's sermon was, was going to be a couple of situations of unfairness, right? And as we look at those verses, it doesn't take a rocket, science, a rocket scientist to, to, to pick out those two things, right? First we see in verse 2, we see Hannah, she didn't have any children. And Penina had lots of children, right? We discover uh, in uh, verse 6 that the Lord had shut up Hannah's womb, that she was barren, and along comes Penina. And she is just about as opposite of Hannah as you can be. Hannah can't have children, and Penina can't stop having children, right? And that doesn't seem fair. 
Why does God give one woman so many children and close the womb of another? But that's a surface level look at this. So I want to I dive in just a little bit deeper here from Hannah's viewpoint. Uh, the first thing that we should understand is, is Elkanah had two wives. And I struggled with this over the last couple of weeks uh, because it, he's, he's listed as a, a, a righteous man, right? All the commentaries I was reading uh, listed him as a righteous man. And by most accounts, he was a righteous man. He went yearly to the, the temple. He was doing the things that they weren't doing. Um, the other Israelites had not been doing. That's why there was the cycle of the judges. Right? But it just kept tripping me up with this two wives thing. And Abraham had multiple wives, right? And Jacob had multiple wives. And the Near East culture of that time certainly would have condoned it. I mean, that was what they did. If your first wife didn't give you children, you got another wife. And, and hopefully she, she gave you children. And they just continued down the line until they got kids. I have several old commentaries that Pastor Andy gave me when he left. Check that guy out. The Preacher's Homily Commentary. I was, I was reading it, and I, I popped over, and I was like, when was this written? And uh, it has a, a, a publishing date of 1892. Nice. 1892. It's an old book. Yeah. And in this book, I finally found somebody willing to tackle the issue that he had two wives. I want to read to you what they say here. The custom of society unconsciously colors men's characters and habits. Their very conscience is influenced by the moral atmosphere in which they breathe. They become colored by the thoughts and actions of those by whom they are surrounded and often yield their consent to a wicked custom, the sin of which they do not perceive because of the moral darkness in which they live. It was doubtless so with those patriarchs who practiced bigamy or polygamy, and it was so also with Elkanah. Turn with me, if you would, real quick. Hopefully that didn't mess you up too much there, Karen. Sorry about that. I'll get a table next time. Uh, turn with me to Genesis, if you would. Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. My pages will stop sticking together. There we go. Genesis chapter 2. I'm going to start in verse 22, and I'm just going to read a couple verses here. Genesis chapter 2, verse 22. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. One flesh. The Bible has, has verses in it that are, are um, descriptive, right? They describe what's going on. But it also has verses in there that are prescriptive. So they tell you uh, what you should do, right? So descriptive would be like, uh, there's a lady in the second row wearing a striped shirt. That's descriptive, right? Prescriptive would be, I say to you, everyone that is righteous should wear a striped shirt, right? That's prescriptive. That's not in the Bible, but that's just an example, right? The story today is descriptive, right? It absolutely describes what was going on. But we see elements of prescription in there, right? While 
these verses describe what is happening, you can very clearly see what happens when God's design for marriage is perverted. Family strife, daily insults, abuses, all resulted from Elkanah's departure from God's design. Right? I think it might have been that, that one there. I had another. I've got another old comment. It's from the 60s, not the 1800s. But it, it mentioned uh, that Hannah and Penina were two millstones and uh, Elkanah was in between them just getting crunched up every day. Right? That's a picture. The strife that went on because God's design had been abandoned. And to make matters worse, Hannah had little choice in this. Right? Women's in, women's, women in the uh, uh, 12th century BC didn't really make a whole lot of decisions when it came to who they were going to marry. Right? So she had no choice in the matter. So here's Hannah. And she can't do one of the greatest things that women have been able to do through history. She can't have a child with her husband. And although she isn't exactly replaced, she's definitely augmented with Penina in direct opposition for God's design for the family, and Penina therefore becomes her rival. And every day she has to endure the backhanded comments, the feelings of inadequacy, however unfounded, but still real to her. The pain of watching Penina provide the joy of a son or a daughter to the man that she loved, the one that God had sewn her together with in one flesh. And then they would go to this feast in Shiloh, and this was supposed to be a joyful thing, right? This was a time for the Israelites to come together, and they were to worship, and they were to um, thank God for all the things that, that he had given them. Uh, there's a description of, of the attitudes that people were supposed to have during this feast in Deuteronomy 14, uh, in verse 26. He's given a little instruction. He says, you may spend the money for whatever your heart desires, for oxen, or sheep, or wine, or strong drink, or whatever your heart desires. And there you shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. This feast was a time for joy for what God had given them. And yet, what had God given Hannah? Every year she would go there, every year. And there was this custom there that the, the leader of the house would offer a sacrifice and a portion of that, like the right shoulder and a few other small pieces, would go to the priest, but the family would get the rest of the meat, right? And so here comes Elkanah, and he, he doles out a portion to each one of the children, and then he doles out a portion to Penina. And then he picks up this big old slab of beef and slops it down on the plate in front of Hannah. And God bless his heart, he was just trying to show Hannah that he loved her, but it would just sit there filling the plate, just as useless as Hannah felt. It was useless because if you look at verse 7, it says, Hannah would sit there and not eat while Penina would mock her. Why does she need so much food? Look at that big old helping of food. Why don't you give some of that to the kids? She doesn't, she doesn't have anybody to share it with. Why are you giving her that big old hunk of meat? On the flip side of that coin, just imagine you're Penina. You're the second wife. You're the wife that was brought in because the first wife couldn't have children. And again, just like Hannah, you didn't have very much choice in the matter. And even though you provide your husband with several children, several sons and daughters, 
he would always put that ridiculous pile of meat in front of the wife that he loved. The wife that didn't have to do anything to earn his affection. The wife who just sat there and whined and weeped the whole time. And meanwhile, your husband would sit there and try to console her, completely ignoring you and your children. That's not fair either. Now, I sincerely doubt that any of you are dealing with either of these two exact situations, especially those of you with the, the male gender with us this morning, despite what our culture says. But have you ever had a situation that is out of your control? Something that was done to you or said about you that was completely false, that just wasn't fair. How did you handle it? How should we handle it? Because we do know that life can be cruel and very unfair. So how do we as children of the Most High God respond in these situations? We do know that James tells us in James 1, verses 2 through 4, he says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But what does that look like in action? How do we deal with trials in a way that honors God? I mentioned we would look at two responses. So let's look at how not to respond first, right? Both women were presented with little choice in their life circumstances. Panina, however, chose to deal with her unfairness with bitterness and hatred. And we're given two verses to talk about how Panina dealt with unfairness and yet years of verbal abuse and mental abuse are contained within those two little verses. Words like provoke, bitterly, to irritate, they define Panina. Consumed in her bitterness and hatred, Panina attacks someone who, by all means, or all rights, has, has, has no more choice in the situation than she does. I think it's important to point out that although Elkanah had not upheld God's design for the marriage, he diligently served the Lord year after year after year afterwards. So Panita would, she would have had the same access to the training in the Lord and the same access in the worship of the Lord that Hannah had. But to be honest, Panita's response is the one that's easiest, I think, for us to default to. Bitterness and complaining, it feeds our flesh, right? And, and oftentimes we find ourselves seeking the approval or at least the pity of others. Hey, did you hear what so-and-so said about me? Wasn't that terrible? This person's terrible. I stumbled across a quotation from uh, Charles Spurgeon this week, and I think we need to keep this in mind when we're dealing, especially with the things that, that people say to us. And Charles Spurgeon says, he says, if any man thinks ill of you, don't be angry with him, for you are worse than he thinks you to be. <laughs> we may have the sin of another in our life. Maybe it's divorce, or anger, or pride, or some other sin that has caused unfair situations in your own life. But in the end, God will not look at you uh, when you get up to heaven and say, uh, Dear child, your father was a jerk. Don't worry about how you did. Right? It's not how it works. We're not going to be held accountable for other people's actions. And to be sure, if, if you're a Christian, if you're saved, 
by the blood of Jesus Christ, you won't be punished for your sin, but we will absolutely give an accounting for how we live here on this earth. We will. Do you want to be the, do you want to be the one that looks at God and says, well, this person was really mean to me, so I just shut down. I didn't do this. I didn't want to serve you, Lord, because uh, you know sometimes people in the church are mean. There's a second example. It's Hannah's example. Let's look at her. Year after year, tortured by her inability to produce an heir for her husband. Year after year, provoked bitterly by her rival, Penina. She weeps and fasts and prays. Look back to our verses for today. Starting in verse 9 there, it says, Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me, and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come on his head. Now it came about as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli was watching her mouth. As for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart. Only her lips were moving. But her voice was not heard, so Eli thought she was drunk. Hannah gives us a case study in how to deal with life's unfairness. Right? If Hollywood wrote this story, right, they would have given Hannah some witty response to bring Penina down a couple notches, right? Or maybe, maybe she would have figured out a way to murder Penina and get away with it. But Hollywood didn't write this. The story of a godly woman who rises from the table of her humiliation and seeks after God is what we're looking at today. <laughs> Hannah goes to the one place where she knows Penina won't follow, to the Lord. And she pours out her soul. I don't usually try to take large portions of commentary and insert them into my sermon, but I've already done it once, so what's one more, right? I thought this take on Hannah and her faith was, was too well written to pass over. The New American Commentary says this about Hannah. In spite of, or perhaps because of, her infertility, Hannah was a woman of faith. In fact, Hannah is portrayed as the most pious woman in the Old Testament. Here she is shown going up to the Lord's house. No other woman in the Old Testament is mentioned doing this. In addition, Hannah is the only woman shown making and fulfilling a vow to the Lord. She is also the only woman who is specifically said to pray. Her prayer is among the longest recorded in the Old Testament. Furthermore, her prayer includes the most recorded utterances of Yahweh's name by a woman, 18. She is shown avoiding the faults of the first infertile covenant woman, Sarah, by seeking help from Yahweh rather than pursuing crafty schemes. She also avoided the fault of Jephthah, who likewise made a vow that separated him from his child. Whereas Jephthah gave his daughter as a burnt offering, Hannah gave her child as a living sacrifice. So let's look at this prayer, this prayer of Hannah's, starting in verse 10. First Samuel chapter 1, verse 10. She was greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord, and wept 
bitterly. That wept bitterly can be translated uh, bitterness of soul. We see that phrase uh, in Job several times, right? You're familiar with Job. He lost his whole family. He lost everything his own, he owned. Right? He lost his health. Uh, that, that bitterness of soul was, was something he says several times. In 2 Kings um, 4, we see uh, there, there was a Shunammite, a Shunammite woman um, who Elisha had, um, through the Lord, given a son. Right? He prayed for her. She had a son. This son was older. He was working in the fields and dropped dead. Right? And she comes to him, and he sees her afar off, and he sees, kind of wonders what's going on. And she comes up, and she grabs his feet when she gets there. And, and her, the servant that was with him goes to, to push her away, and he says, no, 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 no. He says her soul is troubled within her. Right? It's that same phrase. It's the same thing that she just lost her only child. Except here's Hannah, and she's praying with that same fervor, that same pain in her soul. And she takes all of this eternal pain, internal pain and, and gives it to the Lord. And her prayer has a few components we need to look at. She starts off with, O Lord of hosts. Prior to this prayer, no other scripture uses this term to speak of the Lord. And she says, O Lord of hosts, and she takes God and she puts him where he belongs, as the sovereign ruler of the universe. O Lord of hosts. And second, we see uh, another component. She uses the word maidservant three times. Right? Maidservant, maidservant, maidservant. So she puts God where he belongs as sovereign ruler of the universe, and she puts herself where she belongs as a servant of the Lord. Right? As, as owned by the Lord. Brandon, in our youth group lesson Thursday night, made a point of, of, of pointing this out for us. What does it mean when you own something? What can you do with something you own? Whatever you want, right? And that's what Hannah's saying. Lord, you can do whatever you want. You are sovereign, and I acknowledge that. But then we get to the third portion. She makes a vow. It's a Nazarite vow. That's why you, you hear about the, the no razor shall ever touch his head. We read of, of three people who took Nazarite vows in the Bible. Samson. Remember him, the strong guy. Samuel, who would be Hannah's son, and John the Baptist. Right? They all took Nazarite vows. And we're not in the age of vows, but we do still pray expecting a response, whether that's yes or no, amen? amen. And we do still have elements of vows in our prayers in that we are asking God for his will to be done. And when his will is done, our vow is that we will trust him because he is the sovereign. And we are the servant. Our vow is to trust in the Lord no matter the circumstance. No matter how many times, year after year after year after year we pray, we trust that God is sovereign. Now this passionate praying uh, to God, it catches Eli, the high priest's eye, right? Have you ever been praying really hard and you... And you're, you're praying in your heart, but your lips are moving. And Eli sees it. And I don't want to belabor this point too much because we're going to talk about Eli next week. Right? He had two worthless sons. Right? That's what, what the Bible calls him. I didn't, I didn't call him that. Right? <laughs> but I want, to, I want to look at how this encounter ends because I told you earlier that we would look at how when you make that right response to unfairness, how does that affect us as Christians? Right? 
So look at verses 13 through 18 there. As for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart, only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. So Eli thought she was drunk. Then Eli said to her, How long will you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah replied, No, my Lord, I am a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant as a worthless woman, for I have spoken until now out of my great concern and provocation. Then Eli answered her, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked him. She said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. And then here's the sentence. This is the, this is the key here. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Did Hannah have a son at that point? Was Hannah even pregnant at that point? Did Hannah even have a promise to be pregnant at that point? You look at what Eli said. He said, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant your petition. He didn't say the God of Israel is going to grant your petition. Congratulations, you win. He didn't say that. He said, may the God of Israel grant your petition. She smiles and she goes home. She eats. She had put God in a position where he belongs. Sovereign ruler. She had put herself in the position where she belongs. Servant. And she'd taken all that pain out and she laid it there in front of God. She removed it set it down, and walked away from it. And she smiled. And she went back to that big old chunk of meat that was sitting on her plate. Maybe made a roast beef sandwich. <laughs> Did we do that today? Did we have things in our lives that just keep eating away at us? Yesterday in men's Bible study, we used the metaphor of, of a a house, right? And when you when somebody comes over to your house, you make sure the front room's real nice and clean, right? You're like, oh, the house is so clean. <laughs> Don't open the closet. <laughs> Don't go upstairs, right? When we become a servant of God, he wants the whole house, not just the front room. Right? And do we have closets or, or rooms that we've blocked off from God? <laughs> Don't go in there. That's ours. Do we have closets of bitterness and, and, and anger and unfairness that, of things that have happened to us. This week we need to examine our lives. We need to throw open those doors where we hide our bitterness and despair. We need to unload it all at the foot of the cross so that we can be free to fulfill our vow, our mission of making disciples of all nations. Closing, I, I just want to quickly highlight something. You see, sometimes our prayers are answered in the way that we want, and, and sometimes they're not, right? And maybe a few years go by or a few decades, and you're able to look back and go, thank you, Jesus, for not answering that prayer. Whew. But sometimes we may not know why the answer is no. How do we deal with that? How do we continue to, to press on when God says no? That's not what I'm doing right now. What guidance does the Bible give for both yeses and nos in our prayer lives? And it may surprise you, the response is pretty much the same. In Hannah's case, God answered her prayers the way she asked, right? We read in 1 Samuel 1, 19 through 20. Uh, they get up the next morning, they worship the Lord, they go home. First, or, uh, Elkanah and, and Hannah know each other in a biblical manner, and Hannah has a baby. Great. And the response to God 
Giving Hannah a son, she fulfills her vow. She trusts in the Lord. She gives Samuel to the service of God the rest of his life. And so Hannah's response to God answering her unfairness is to trust God and to worship him. But what happens when the story doesn't turn out the way we hope? What happens when the suffering continues? What does the Bible say for that? So in 2 Samuel, in uh, chapter 12, we read about a guy named David, right? King David. And he'd gone out and he'd had an affair with a woman, gotten her pregnant, and then to hide it, he'd had her husband killed, right? He murdered her. And it all becomes apparent. Uh, Nathan comes in, the prophet comes in and exposes his sin. And, and Nathan in verse 14 says, because you've done this, uh, the child uh, will die. The child that is being born to you, Bathsheba. And so we pick up there in verse 15. It says, so Nathan went to his house. Then the Lord struck the child that Uriah's widow bore to David, so that he was very sick. David therefore inquired of God for the child, and David fasted and went and lay all night on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him in order to raise him up from the ground, but he was unwilling and would not eat food with them. Then it happened on the seventh day that the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was still alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to our voice. How then can we tell him that the child is dead, since he might do himself harm? But when David saw his servant whispering together, David perceived that the child was dead. So David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed, anointed himself, and changed his clothes. And he came into the house of the Lord, and he worshipped. And then he came into his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servants said to him, What is this thing that you have done? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But when the child dies, died, you arose and ate food. And he said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me, that the child may live. But now he has died, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. So David trusted God and worshipped him. Both responses are the same. God is sovereign. God is in control. I am your servant. Do as you will, Lord. Both responses honor God as the giver of life and the sovereign ruler of the universe. And this is how we as Christians deal with unfairness. Because we've seen life ain't fair, right? We know that we will face situations where we are unfairly treated. But we also know that there are two responses to unfairness. A response that honors God and a response that doesn't. And if we choose to honor God with our response, things may not turn out perfectly. We may not receive vindication. But as Philippians 4, 6-7 through 7 tells us, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's the peace that Hannah had. That's why she smiled and went to him. As we move now in our service to the Lord's Supper, we're reminded of the peace that God gave so freely to us. This meal is, is a meal for believers. It's done to remind us of the sacrifice that Jesus made to overcome the sin in my life and the sin in your life. 
If you are here today and you haven't accepted that gift, I'm so glad you're here. I am so glad you're in the right place. But this meal is a meal for believers. I'm going to pray now, and then we'll sing a song. And while we're singing, uh, feel free to stand up and head to the back there and uh, take your cup there, the bread's underneath the, the juice there. And then as you come back to your seat, now's the time for <coughs> self-examination. What are the things in our life that we're harboring? What is the bitterness that we're harboring? What are the things that are getting in the way of having a good relationship with God? Not on God's part. God's always there. On our part. What are we doing with that? Break that up. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Hannah and Elkanah, and we even thank you for Penina. And we thank you for the Paninas in our life. Lord, they drive us to you. And they're uncomfortable and they're painful, but Lord, they drive us to you, the author of peace. Lord, may we take our hurts and our unfairnesses to you like Hannah. May we lay them at the foot of the cross, and may we raise up and smile and go with you. And we pray as we uh, partake of the Lord's Supper here, Lord, that we would, you would convict us of, of those closets or, or nooks and crannies in our homes where we hide bitterness or hide uh, any, any other sin for that matter. Lord, that you would throw those doors open, that we would lay those down, and that we would honor you, that we love you. In Jesus' name we pray.